All proceeds go to help fund the podcast and our miscellaneous expenses for the next year. You can go over to our website, mormonexpression.com, and find all the event details by clicking the link in the top right-hand corner. We hope to see you there. Uh, Make sure to reserve your tickets early because there is a limited number of seats available and we're sure it's going to fill up. It'll be a great time to come meet other like-minded individuals and meet the faces behind the voices on the podcast. We hope to see you there. Welcome back to another edition of uh, Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. Tonight, I'm joined by one of our um, favorite panelists, uh, Tom. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing great. Thanks, John. And tonight, Tom and I are joined by two uh, individuals who uh, we've been really looking forward to talking to them. Um, First of all, we have um, Natasha. Hi, Natasha. Hello. Now, Natasha is a marriage and family therapist. Natasha, what does that mean? Okay. Um, well, I got my undergraduate at Brigham Young University. That means my bachelor's degree in science and psychology. And then um, from there, you have to start making some career choices as to you know what what you want to specifically um, work in. And, and at that point, I made the decision to do my specialty in marriage and family work. So then I had to go ahead and get my master's degree in marriage and family therapy so I could become a therapist. Usually you have to have at least master's level to to become a, a therapist where you're, you know, reimbursable and things like that by insurance. So that was my route, and there's lots of other routes in the mental health field, but I ended up getting my master's degree at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas, and um, have been practicing ever since. All right. Uh, welcome. And, um, of course, this is a Mormon-themed podcast. Uh, what's your connection to the church? Well, my parents um, converted to the Mormon church when I was about five years old, and so I was raised in the church, and uh, for the most part, for the majority of my life, and um, have been pretty much an active member ever since, and um, so I guess it's my, my connection with the church, and for the most part, my clients tend to be people of the LDS faith. Not not completely, but I would say probably 80%. All right, great. And you're still current you're you're still currently a member, that's right, isn't it? Yes, I am. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, cool. And we're also joined by our old friend Wes. Wes has helped us out in the past. You you did the conference uh, stuff with us. Did you have you done anything else with us, Wes? No, I did uh, one session of conference last year and then again this year, and that's all I've done. That's right. Well, that's plenty. Thanks. That's 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 <laughs> yeah. that's no small feat. Uh, and Wes <laughs> Wes is a mental health counselor. Hi Wes. Yeah. Howdy. So yeah, I uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Arizona in uh, family studies and human development, and then uh, went on to get my master's in counseling psychology. So I graduated a few years ago, and I've been in private practice ever since then. Um, and my connection to the church, I was born and raised in a uh, devout Mormon home and uh, kind of questioned things as a teenager. And then I left the church um, not long after that. 
All right. Well, welcome to both of you again. Um, for this, uh, the topic this evening, it started out a few months ago with um, Tom and I talking about that we would like to have a discussion about the problem, the, the apparent problem of, of pornography uh, among the saints, uh, especially in terms of statistics and, uh, you know, the, the statistic that a lot of people ban around is um, some of the top leading um, dirty word term searches coming out of Google are out of the Salt Lake area. Um, there was a, a paper a little while ago that showed that like uh, the Salt Lake City had one of the highest subscription rates to um, pornography. And I don't know if that's just because Mormons haven't figured out how to get free pornography yet. Uh, uh, but there's all sorts of um, there's all sorts of problems that um, are uh, apparently surfacing. And if you take it from conference talks and, and the ensign, you know they're talking about pornography all the time. Um, of course, the biggest impact from pornography is the impact on the families and the marriages and all that stuff. And that was kind of the genesis of this. Um, as we've talked about it since, um, you know, the, that well goes pretty deep. So we thought we'd bring both of you on with uh, sort of who know more about stuff than Tom and I and um, kind of hash this out and see what's, what's going on underneath the surface there. Uh, Tom, you have any, any thoughts to add to that? Yeah, as, as uh, both both Natasha and I were email and corresponding. We started to understand that pornography goes into addiction. Addiction goes into other additional problems. And so we kind of wanted to, I guess, go with struggling with uh, Mormon marriages as kind of a topic of this podcast. Um, we Obviously, this is a, a huge topic, so we just kind of wanted to touch on some of them briefly. Obviously, uh, pornography being one of them. But... Uh, kind of let uh, Wes and Natasha have the floor and just kind of talk about certain things that uh, they encounter as far as uh, encountering with the LDS uh, membership that they that they meet with on a regular basis. So, yeah. And maybe a great place to start for me is the addiction component, because I've always had trouble sorting that out. I mean, I can understand how alcohol or heroin is addicting, but sexuality is kind of part and parcel to our psyche. You know, you can't recover from sexuality. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that um, the terms addiction, and quite frankly, um, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic well, what, Statistic Manual, where all the diagnoses come out of, is, is being revamped right now. It's in the process of and it's revamped every, I don't know, five to ten years. And... Um, this is a big issue that they're talking about is what what is addiction and what does it cover? Because right now, really, from a diagnostic um, criteria, it really only covers alcohol and drug usage. And I think gambling is in there. And um, sexuality is really not part of the, of the DSM right now as far as in the addictions criteria. There are other issues that come up with, with sexuality. And um, there's a lot of other things as well. I mean, gaming and... Um, you know, video games that people are playing uh, that has now been, you know, um, what's the word, put forth as far as whether or not that should be considered an addiction, um, you shopping. Mean, when you say gaming, you're talking like World of Warcraft, not, yes. not like uh, slot machines. Yes, okay. exactly. Because gambling is actually part of the addiction language right now. Right. Um, and there's, you know, there's gamblers and anonymous and there's things like that out there already. So there's a lot of, of different things. And, and what it really comes down to, I think, is the issue of human nature and when are we considered to be doing behaviors compulsively. And I think it really comes down to um, it doesn't really matter what the behavior is. 
And, you know, even though sexuality is definitely part of who we are, so is drinking, you know, drinking liquid, so is eating food, so is most of our behaviors has something to do with who we are as basic human beings. And take pretty much any behavior and either do it in a healthy manner or do it in an unhealthy manner. And that's where addiction comes in. And so, um, so yeah, so, so there definitely is um, a, a, an idea that sexuality can become addictive. And the problem, I think, with, with LDS members is that we, we throw around this word of addiction very lightly. Um, you know, you catch your husband watching pornography one time in his life and all of a sudden he's an addict or, um, you know, a young teenager is masturbating once a month and he's an addict or, um, you know, those kinds of things. And, and behavior is not addictive until it becomes really dysfunctional. And so where do we cross that line from calling it dysfunctional? And that's something that we're all kind of struggling with, I think, both in the mental health field and, and just as, as individuals and families relationships and in spousal relationships. But there are criteria that, that make an addiction an addiction as far as the mental health field is concerned. And, and I can talk about that further if you'd like. So, Natasha, as far as addictions go, how big of a problem is this within uh, marriages in general, but primarily with LDS marriages? Do you think addiction um, causes a lot of problems? Do you think that's like in the top, I don't know, top five, top ten? I think the perception of addiction causes a lot of problems, um, and, and, I, and I do think that there are a lot of members who are legitimately addicted to different behaviors. And what I have found is that Mormons are not really that exempt from national statistics. Uh, we don't have as much statistical information on Mormons as we do the general public, but when I have done a little bit of research on that, I haven't found a huge disparity. Um, so if, you know, if one and two marriages get a divorce, Mormons aren't that far behind from that. What, what would you say um, in your experience as far as meeting with uh, Mormon couples, what do you see as some of the more common factors, some of the more common problems? Well, um, I think issues of behavior are definitely part of that, whether it's pornography or... Um, whatever it is, pornography does actually come up quite a bit with, with couples. Any issues regarding sexuality in couples comes up, whether it's the guy is watching pornography or there's a, or the girl is watching pornography or the frequency of desire is quite different. That's a very common one. Um, and what to do about that. How do, you know, how do we communicate about that? How do we, what are, what are the expectations around that? Um, also, the issues of differences in faith, which also can, can affect sexuality. I mean, when we have different belief systems around, we do a lot of assuming, you know, when we pe meet people of the same faith. Oh, you're a Mormon, I'm a Mormon, therefore we must believe a lot of the same things. And we take a lot kind of at face value instead of doing some more in-depth communication about some serious issues before we get married. That's a trend I've seen. And so then all of a sudden two people are married and they've had some children. And even though they're both practicing members and they both may still have a very strong testimony of the church, that testimony looks very different. And the behaviors that are allowed, that are permissible, 
that are okay are very different. You know, one person thinks it's okay to watch rated R movies, one person doesn't. One person thinks it's okay to masturbate if, you know, the other person isn't in the mood, the other person doesn't. Um, you know, those kinds of things that are not necessarily testimony breaking issues, but that are very um, sometimes critical issues in a marriage. You, you'd mentioned uh, uh, a different different belief system within a marriage. Um, do you find it uh, a common problem? I, maybe not a common problem, but let, let's say one spouse is of the LDS faith and one spouse is not, whatever various faith or even non-faith. Is that, is that a common problem within um, marriages, I guess? I don't think it's a common one, but it's definitely one that comes up. I think that what's more common is this idea of you know, like we're both still want to be members of the church, but how we see that or our expectations around that are different. So, but, you know, there are obviously couples too where, you know, um, Faces East, I think, you know, they've, you've done interviews with them where, you know, in the middle of a marriage, one of the, one of the spouses decides that this is no longer the faith that they believe in or they have, you know, test more kind of in-depth issues about the faith. So that definitely comes up, but I wouldn't say that's a common problem. Um, I, I don't really have statistics to back myself up on that, but in my own practice, I would say that's maybe 5% of the people I work with. Whereas pornography and sexual issues, that's probably, you know, maybe 70% of wow. what I work okay. with. And, but the disparity in faith as far as what my expect, you know, I'm going to be a Mormon and this is what I think it means to be a Mormon and I'm going to be a Mormon too and this is what I think it means to be a Mormon. I think that's 95% of the people who come to see me. Really? Interesting. Now, now Wes, um, from, from prior conversation, your client base is mostly a, a non-Mormon. Um, you, you don't work with many Mormons now, do you? No, I, I have worked with a few, but uh, yeah, the area I'm in, there's not, it's not a huge uh, Mormon population. Um, I do have a desire to work with people uh, from Mormonism, though. Now, it, it seems from my general understanding of just, you know, the layman reading around, um, issues of sexual incompatibility are, I mean, are, are, are virtually universal. I mean, it's, it's really high on lists of what causes divorce or causes friction in marriages and it would seem that every couple is going to deal with that at some point you know whether it be some point during the 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 month or some point during their lifetime it's going to come up some sooner or later so absolutely so how does how does religion both from a mormon perspective and from other religions how does that affect the issue does it does it make it better does it make it worse or is it is it a wash i think there's a i think that like with well, with almost anything in life there's a little bit of both i think that religion and your spiritual beliefs can very much be a part of would help you sort things out as a couple you know that uh, that connection on a spiritual level and having similar beliefs and having similar goals um, especially the whole theme in the LDS faith of, you know, eternal marriages and that, you know, we're working on something more than just what I need right at this moment uh, can be very useful. And, um, and many religions have those types of kind of more long-term goals uh, about life that kind of keep a couple grounded and keep them from just reacting to a problem that just comes up today or this month or even this year, you know, the, kind of that idea of let's look at the bigger picture. What are we really 
trying to accomplish here together in our marriage uh, and what is it going to mean for us. On the other hand, there's a lot of rigidity around religion and people who are religious, and there's a lot of um, uh, low tolerance for anything different than what the religion prescribes or the doctrine that is taught or, uh, quite frankly, the, the rules that are uh, espoused when, in, in, you know, in most religions. And a lot of the rules in both Mormon and many other religions have to do with sexuality and when it's proper, when it's not, and, and what happens to you when you're, when you're improper. And, you know, we see from stonings and deaths and killings in some religions to shaming and um, guilt-producing things to excommunications. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen as consequences to improper sexual um, behavior, which of course rises everybody's anxiety, and anxiety and sex don't mix don't mix well together. <laughs> There's a lot huh. of problems when you mix sex and anxiety. Um, so then you have issues that, and, and most of these issues, quite frankly, that happen with religious uh, rigidity happen before people are married. You know what should be the the um, okay behavior before people are married and, and choose a spouse. So a lot of it is taught to our teenagers and to our single adults. Um, there's still some of that even in marriage, you know, what's what's supposedly appropriate within a marriage and what is not. There's definitely some some rules that I think most people either assume or or think about at some point. Um, and, and even in non-religious people, that's true. You know, most people, whether they're religious or not, um, at least in this country, believe in monogamy, for instance. You know, open marriage is not really an option many people choose. Uh, that's kind of a rule most, most people have set up for themselves. Not all. Some people are fine with that. But for the most part, culturally, that's kind of something that we all kind of stick with. So in, in our Mormon culture, there are pros that happen with our sexuality. I try to point those out all the time. I think that the doctrine, when you look at the basic doctrine of our church, um, or actually, let me correct that, of our gospel, because I really like to separate those two things out, <laughs> are very pro-sex, pro, um, pro-husband and wife, pro-family, and you can't have a family without sex. So they're very pro-sex. And there's actually some beautiful scriptures that you know I consider actually erotica in our in you know in our books that help us understand that and, and embrace that. But we don't always balance that out. We we kind of have the the I think the majority of our focus unfortunately goes to the rules and to the what you shouldn't be doing and this creates shame and guilt and all these kind of sad feelings for people that once married don't go magically away. And that's one of the, our biggest issues, I think. Um, when, and, hey, Natasha, when, when you were talking about the, the rigidity within the, the Mormon faith and, and the, how that could, poss you know, that could possibly be a problem, um, do, you, do you find that more of stemic to Mormonism or religion in general? Or do you think that, and I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to what Wes thinks too, but is it, uh, do you think the Mormon faith is a little more rigid as far as in do's and don'ts in sexuality than than other religions or even non-religious? Well, I live in the Bible Belt, so for a long time I thought 
that we were pretty conservative. I, I no longer think that about the Mormon faith. I think we're actually quite open-minded in many ways. Um, I've had kind of a turnaround in that thinking because now I live around actually more conservative people than my, my Mormon counterparts. So uh, I think religion in general has this issue. I think as Mormons, we have uh, issues that are maybe just tweaked a little bit uh, so that they're unique to us. Okay. I would I would say um, from my perspective that the more fundamentalist religions out there uh, tend to be more rigid than others has been my experience um, and with Mormonism in particular you know you, you've had people like Spencer Kimball giving talks on oral sex and that that's not okay uh, so when you have authorities like that speaking on those kind of issues I think that you know, definitely plays a big role in how people see it. Um, interviews from the bishop asking if you masturbate. Um, and just in general, you know, I know for me growing up and many other people I've talked to, um, just the subject of sex is just not really open for discussion. It's, it's kind of a, you know, we don't really want to talk about that. And there's just kind of a lot of shame around it um, just overall. Like it's just not an open topic has been my experience. And I, and I agree with that. Now, speaking of the, the shame, you know, the, one of the questions that comes up in terms of, of Mormons, most Mormons, or uh, I don't know, <laughs> maybe a lot, um, save themselves until marriage. So a couple who's been dating, maybe even for a long time, uh, gets married and then has to negotiate that sexual compatibility afterwards. Um, I wonder if that contributes at all, or or if it's a net benefit. I I, I really, I, I really don't know. Well, the um, I don't I don't really know about I don't know much about research about premarital sex versus um, you know postmarital sex and which one's better as far as in the long run. But some statistics that I have been aware of that came out of the um, University of Michigan had to do with people who live together before they marry. And, you know, you think intuitively thinking, you think, well, that makes sense. Let's try this out, you know, before we jump the gun and make this huge decision and, and see if we're compatible and see if it works and, and then decide to get married. And so that's what kind of logically you think that that, that would be beneficial. And what they have found actually, um, I don't have, you know, obviously the study in front of me, but the basic results were that that wasn't the case, that people who live together before they get married, so they've lived together and now they're married, have actually a higher rate of divorce than those who have not lived together before they're married. Yeah, I'm familiar with that study too. Did they offer any reason why that is? Um, well, it was all kind of you know, theories that obviously have not been proven, but I think the main reason around it was that people who live, decide to live together before they get married are less committal in general than those who are willing to take that risk to begin with. Yeah, I think that was generally what, what people thought the study concluded. Okay, I want to go in kind of a different direction here. This was on my mind when Natasha was talking about um, the sexual negotiations in a marriage. Uh, this, there's a couple that I know, um, and they're divorced now, so it's not a big deal. But uh, while they were married, 
um, they had a sex calendar. Um, and so the man, of course, um, he, he said that he wanted it all the time. I guess that's usually with males, you know. It's like, I, I always want it. But she exercised power by saying, these are the days you get. And, of course, that caused serious problems in our marriage. And that seems kind of obvious from an outsider looking in. But uh, I'm curious if, if you guys run across that kind of scenario, especially you, Natasha. What, what are your thoughts on that kind of scenario? Well, let me go back to the sexual compat compatibility question that was first broached. Um, you know, one thing that I have noticed is whether they're LDS or not is, quite frankly, I've worked with lots of couples who, whether they're LDS or not, have had premarital sex. And um, usually, you know, they describe that as being very hot and very exciting and, you know, very, um, just a, a very fun time of their of their life together. I mean, usually premarital sex or any sexual encounter with somebody that you're not completely committed to is usually very exciting, you know, as long as both partners are, you know, into it and it's not something that somebody's being coerced into doing. So, and, and yet they come to me 20 years later with the same sexual issues that the couples who have waited to be married come to me with. So just because you had the chance to have hot and heavy sex, you know, or try out the, you know, tr give the car a, a trial run or whatever people say, doesn't ensure that the sex is always going to be great. Because a lot of things happen within a marriage that, you know, the, your sexual development goes through many different stages and you're not hardly ever on the same level together through those stages. Um, I mean, there's hormones that take, you know, come into play. There's childbearing that comes into play. There's the factor that we, you know, many times just get bored with one another or doing the same things all the time. I mean, there's all these different relational issues that come into any marriage where uh, sexuality is going to be affected. So I think the idea that, you know, let's make sure that we're sexually compatible before we get married, it's just really, it doesn't hold much, much base, quite frankly. Because you can have great sex before you get married. In fact, a lot of couples, even on their honeymoon or even after, you know, in their first years of marriage, have great sex and yet are coming to me with very serious issues, you know, several years after that. Um, having said that, now going back to the question, I'm sorry, what was the question that was most recent? It was uh, the, the power control, like one spouse. Um, right. So, yeah, sex, 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 like anything, can be used as a manipulation tool. I mean, we, we do it through communication, you know, the silent treatment, I'm not going to talk to you. We do it through um, money issues, I'm not going to let you have access to our, our account, I'm going to control the money. Uh, there, I'm, I'm not going to let you have sex with me. Um, I'm going to, you know, ignore you or I'm going to shout at you until you answer me. I mean, we, we use all kinds of things methods to try to control the other person or try to get a result from the other person because you know we're anxious we're upset we're in pain whatever reasons that we engage in all these wonderful types of behavior that we're all so mature about um and sex is definitely one of them i mean we definitely we definitely do that now there there are legitimate reasons why a person may have low desire of sex you know or lower desire than their partner. In fact, it's kind of 
crazy to think that these two individuals with two very different brains, two different sets of hormones and chemicals going through their brain are going to always be exactly at the same level of desire for sex. It's just that's an, an impossibility. And the sooner a couple realizes that and decides they're going to work through that, the better. And, um, and that's, you know, a lot of the work I do with couples is, you know, where is everybody's sex drive? And, and just because your sex drive is there at a certain level, it doesn't mean it's always going to be there. I have couples where the woman is the, the one who has a higher sex drive um, for many years. Then she all of a sudden starts having babies and then her sex drive goes lower. And now the guy has the higher sex drive and, you know, vice versa. And with age, things happen also to our sex drives. And so sex drive is continually fluctuating and it's affected a lot also by our cultural norms. You know, like you said, the guy who says, well, I want sex every day. Well, does he really want sex every day or is it just what he's been told that he wants? And, you know, so being in touch with our sexuality and really understanding our drives and where we're at with all that is very beneficial for couples to explore. Yeah, and I would just add that the quality of, of the sex is going to be proportionate to the quality of the relationship. Um, and that's another thing that you don't, you're, you're not as involved with if you're having sex prior to a marriage you're not dealing with all the relational issues that come up within a marriage over time that are definitely going to contribute to sex. So I think that's another big factor that needs to be recognized. Yeah, and I, I agree with Wes. There, the only exception to that is the couples who really thrive on conflict. And there are some couples that really that's kind of the, the height of their intimacy. So they have this, this uh, kind of connection through their conflict. And so they fight, 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 and that's how they feel connected. And then after that, they have great sex. And then they fight, fight, fight again and have a horrible emotional relationship, but they're having great sex. That's not the norm, but there are couples that fall into that category. Right. Yeah, that is true. Interesting. Now, Natasha, you brought up um, cultural norms, and uh, I kind of want to uh, go back to porn again. I always want to go back to the porn again. Um, <laughs> So, and how does your wife feel about that? No, I'm just <laughs> so, um, John, would you like to talk offline later? <laughs> oh. No, I, I'm okay with my porn usage. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, you can ask Zilpha uh, yourself. All right. Um, let's see. So, so, it seems like this in the LDS culture would be a big wild card because, you know, we, you've talked kind of about you know, the ebb and flow and sexual negotiation. And maybe 80 years ago, you know, the church would have helped, like, keep that in check, you know, say, this is what's normal, this is what's normal, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. And now suddenly one or both the partners have access to anything they want to know about or anything that that that, that um, floats their boat. And I wonder how that starts affecting relationships, because you might have people wanting more hey, this is what I've seen done, or this is what I think is normal, or this is what I think is available out there, and I'm getting gypped, where, I don't know, maybe 100 years ago, people didn't think that. They were just glad to get what they got. Yeah. Well, one thing that I really try to, to you know, how I try to sort through my own issues, you know, like where where does my Mormonism stop and my therapist begin, you know, and it's, it's always a question that therapists should be asking themselves, you know, is what are our own biases, and my own belief systems and how does that, um, you know, relate to my practice and my, my professional life. 
And um, so I'm always, you know, curious to see, okay, well, this is the guidance, uh, you know, that my religious leader or my church or whatever I want to call it, this is kind of the guidance that they're giving me regarding having a good and healthy and happy life. And, and then how does that correlate then to what the mental health field is, is teaching me and educating me on, you know, when I go to all my conferences and my CEU meetings and all that, you know, what are they saying about how to have a happy and, and healthy life? Cause really I'm, I'm kind of lucky in the sense that I've got these two facets of my life that that's really what, what the goal is, is how do we lead happier and, and more successful and, and more uh, healthier lives? I think that's, that should be the ultimate goal of both of these facets of my life. Um, and, and quite frankly, I've, I've been usually pleasantly surprised that they coincide more often than they disagree. And with the, with the pornography part of this, um, the mental health community is, is very concerned about this as well. This is not something that they're just saying, oh, yeah, super healthy and, and everybody go turn on your porn because it makes you have better sex as a couple. Because that's not always what we're finding out. Now, um, there is a place, I think, for erotica, which I like to um, maybe delineate from pornography. Uh, I, I do think that there is a place for erotica. I've written about that on my blog. I think it can help, first of all, educate people about sexuality. It can help us feel more comfortable with sexuality. It can give a language to sexuality. And quite frankly, it can um, evoke sexual feelings that can help with desire issues within a couple. So I, I'm, I'm all pro-erotica. Um, pornography, on the other hand, my kind of more hardcore, you know, you're watching two people naked having sex together and, and not just like in a nice movie where it's kind of, you know, under a blanket, you're really watching the, the entire thing happen in front of your eyes is, you know, somewhat, somewhat more problematic and not where all mental health professionals will agree. Some mental health professionals will think, you know, it's okay as long as both couples, you know, both wife and husband are comfortable. Um, some mental health practitioners think that's not okay. Um, my experience with it has been that many times one of the partners will say it's okay, but they're not really okay with it. They're just trying desperately to have better sex with their partner. Sometimes um, it gives false expectations to what they should look like or be acting like. Um, usually in pornography, the men have wonderful erect penises all the time, which is not really what happens in real life. Uh, the women are all, you know, at least the porn that I've been subject to, they're looking great and have no uh, wrinkles. They're not pregnant usually. Uh, their boobs are perky and great. So it's just, in the long run, I think it can be helpful in the short run and that it's, it gives that sense of excitement and wow, we're doing something different and this is cool and this is fun. Um, that doesn't last very long. It usually has, I think, more damaging effects in the long run with expectations that are placed on self, on spouse. And then you get the problem that this is the only way that people can be turned on. And that's not healthy. If you need pornography to have a sexual relationship with your spouse, that's just a healthy stance. You shouldn't have to need that. Uh, and people then come be, become dependent. And that's more where the, the addictions can kind of begin. And then quite frankly, because of religious norms and rules and things that we've talked about, most people are not doing this together. This is really something where one of them is doing it either secretly or 
against the wishes of the other, and this causes huge um, issues. Then I have issues with the industry itself. I mean, quite frankly, many of these women who are pornography stars and even the men have a huge high statistical rate of having been sexually abused themselves. Uh, they'll go on and they'll say, oh, I'm an artist and I'm comfortable with my sexuality and I you know this is just my, I want to do this and I get paid great and I'm having so much fun. And quite frankly, these people are not healthy people themselves. They come from usually a lot of trauma. They're very sexualized. A lot of their self-esteem comes from their sexuality. Uh, it's very unbalanced. And then you go to these, you know, more even worse things where people are really being drugged or coerced or forced to be in pornography videos. I'm just, you know, I'm not a fan. Yeah, and a lot of people consider it objectification. Um, you know, you're, you're turning people into objects. Um, and it's also not reality. And that's another big piece, I think. You know, like you were saying, these are perfect images or whatever, but, but the whole thing is, it isn't real, you know, it's a, it's a completely non-real thing that you're engaging in. Um, and then if that replaces the sex life with your spouse, then obviously that's not good. And, and I think you're right that that is far more common, um, that it is just one person engaging in it, uh, and not the other person. So I've, I've heard differing opinions, um, against this, this uh, widely speculated statistic of the uh, high usage high usage of porn in the state of Utah amongst the LDS culture, um, I've heard different theories as to why that may be or or whatnot. I'd just be curious as to what your guys' thoughts are. Why do you think that uh, Mormon, Mormon the Mormon culture seems to have a problem with porn? Well. Every, I mean, our whole country is having a problem with porn. I mean, this is like the number one thing that, that the Internet is being used for. It's definitely not just a Mormon issue. Um, I, I just went to a, a, a conference on sex addiction last year, and they the, the statistics that they showed were just really quite amazing. I mean, the millions and millions of sites that are, you know, focused on pornography. And, the, and then the pornography also is quite varied as far as what type of pornography. You know, we think of pornography as just heterosexual sex, but we're having all kinds of, of sex out there that, uh, quite frankly, can be horribly inappropriate. I mean, when children are involved or even young teenage girls, it's just, um, or boys, you know, it's just not gender specific by any means. So, it's, so it is a, a definite an, an epidemic that I think many people are very concerned about. Now, within the Mormon faith, I think, again, this is um, an, an issue that we deal with as far as the rigidity of sexuality. Our boys are not allowed to masturbate. Our girls are not allowed to masturbate. There's no premarital sex. It's taken very seriously. You know, you have to prepare to go to the temple. You have to go prepare to go to the mission. You know, all wonderful and worthy goals. Uh, yet the pressure is very, very high, especially in families that tend to be rigid. And in fact, when um, one of the statistics that was shared at this conference was that when they look at sex addicts, 77% of them come from what are deemed rigid families. Well, so what's a rigid family? A rigid family is one where there's no, you know, there's little flexibility and there's little tolerance for when rules are broken. Um, well, you know, unfortunately, religious families fall into that 
quite quite often. That's not to say that all Mormons are like that, or or even all religious people. There are, there are wonderful families that do a very good job of teaching proper sexuality to their children. But quite frankly, um, we just don't have the um, what, what do I want to say the um, the background to back us up. Usually, people we're, we're generational. What we you know we do what our, what we see our parents do. That's kind of a human nature thing. So. You know, you go back 20, 50 years, I mean, it was 300 times worse as far as rigidity. And most of these parents have grown up with very rigid ideas about sexuality. Many parents that are teaching their kids today were never even talked to about sexuality. Um, So, yes, it's a concern. And then when we are faced with sexual issues, um, the anxiety goes up. And when anxiety goes up, we all start acting crazy. I mean, that's that's just what we do. That's when we start, you know, screaming and belittling and, oh, my gosh, and what are the neighbors going to think and what's the bishop going to say? And I just anxiety is just probably the number one reason why this becomes such a a problem instead of people learning how to just breathe. And, you know, whether or not your child has premarital sex or masturbates every now and then, you know, they will survive and they can have a, a good life and they can make good choices and they can be taught and. What's frustrating to me is it just goes against our entire premise of Mormon doctrine, which is we're we're here to fall. We are here to fall. And we kind of have this idea that we're here to be perfect and that our children are here to be perfect. And that's just such a disappointment to me when I I see that happening because nothing about what we're taught is that we're going to be perfect here. If we can't be an asset and a resource to our children as they fall, um, then we're really failing them as parents. So you, so you think that uh, more more Mormon homes should be less rigid and more liberal? Well, what do you mean by liberal? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I should clarify that. Not, I'm not meaning in the political sense. I mean more yeah, flexible. Me <laughs> yeah, uh, more flexible. Uh, yeah, uh, less. The opposite I guess, of rigid. Yeah. Maybe maybe I have an example. I, I don't know how many have heard about. There's a new support group that started in Utah, I think last year or two years ago, called the Sons of Helaman, um, which is to deal with pornography addiction. But if you read their website and you read their literature, they treat pornography equally and often mention it in exactly the same um, statement with masturbation. So the whole point is not just to overcome pornography, which is a real social problem, with overcoming masturbation, which in my mind is probably a huge order of magnitude harder to stop, you know, men and women from masturbating versus the, the, the pornography thing. So the church really weds those two hand in hand. Um, and I, I think that there's people who look at all sorts of crap on the line online. They're going to feel bad about that. It's going to impact the relationship. Fine. Granted. But if you're trying to snuff out, you know, masturbation, especially people under 25 or you're, you're going to have a mission that's never going to succeed. I agree with I'm that s- completely. I'm still in shock that women masturbate. That's, yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> you think you guys are the only ones having fun? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a human thing. And, you know, with regard to the last question, you know, for me, you know, sex is a, is a normal, good, healthy part of being a human being. And anytime it's, it's characterized in, an, in, in a way other than that, I think it's going to lead to problems, um, you know, guilt, shame, 
you know, this isn't a, this isn't an okay thing. I mean, I've, I've met numerous people from who've, who've been Mormons or other fundamentalist religions to where they just felt horrible about, about sex just in general. Everything about it was dirty. It was bad. It was wrong. Um, and you should only do it to have kids. And other than that, just stay away, you know? And then in Mormonism, you add on top of that, the issue of garments, um, which I've heard a lot of people talk about that, that that's a, a kind of an inhibitor to their sex life. Um, and so, you know, I think those things just, just make, uh, create an environment for a lot of problems to happen. And, um, Natasha, you were talking about, um, the doctrine and, you know, I don't know if maybe my ward was unique, but I, I was taught that, that perfection was the goal of being a Mormon. I was taught that pretty much my whole time growing up in the church. So I don't know if that was just an anomaly where I was at or, or not, but I, I think for me and other people who I've you know, met who've had that same thing taught, that creates another big uh, issue with this whole thing, um, you know, that I have to be perfect. And so when I'm not, um, you know, I feel bad about myself. Yeah, and that comes from that, you know, lovely scripture, be there perfect as I am from Christ. And um, which, you know, sure, that's the ultimate goal is that we're going to be like Christ, like Heavenly Father, you know, that we're going to be in this this progression, you know, kind of journey that eventually will be perfected or, you know, but, and, and I agree with you. I think that it's culturally something that is spouted. And whenever I challenge it, people will say, well, well, yeah, but, you know, we, we know we don't really reach perfection in this life, you know, that that's something in the afterlife, but we're talking about it all the time, like it's this attainable goal and, and it isn't quite frankly. And so I, I agree with you. I think that's one of those Mormon cultural things that really causes more harm than good. And it sets everybody up for, for really false expectations of what their you know, what their ability is to achieve in this lifetime. And it also, the sad part about it is that, okay, so maybe I'm not perfect, you know, I'm not at a hundred percent, but a lot of the Mormons that I know and, and people that come to me are, you know, at 75 or 80%, they're leading really pretty great lives. They're doing a lot of good things and service and being good parents and, you know, they're just, and, and, but they never give themselves credit for that 80% because they're so fixated on the 20% they haven't accomplished. That's a huge problem. And, and that goes way beyond even sexuality. That just, it, it just infiltrates into every part of a person's life. And this is why we deal with low self-esteem and uh, depression and um, anxiety issues. And, and quite frankly, we have a lot of those in, in our faith. Um, well, again, not in our faith, in our church. I really like to <laughs> separate those terms. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I, I totally like, agree. And, you know, conference was just this past weekend, and I participated in one of the sessions um, with Tom. And, you know, yeah. I was hearing, I, I was hearing that, that kind of thing coming directly from some of the conference talks, you know, kind of the guilt trip, kind of you got to be perfect kind of stuff. So. Um, you know, to me, that stuff's just not helpful at all for people. Well, my understanding is that if, if you do reach perfection, that somehow this translative power will happen, right? And I don't see anybody <laughs> being translated, including our leaders. And um, so, I, you know, it's just if we could just be more um, tolerant of, of not only each other, but of ourselves. I mean, we're just so intolerant of ourselves. And it's just so painful for me to watch people who, you know, are weeping or just so disgruntled with themselves and their lives. And 
I don't know. I think it's, I think it's the, you know, if we're going to believe and, and I don't know, this alternative to good, which we call evil. I mean, that's, that's really the biggest power it has is to, is this, this, this challenge of self-hatred. And uh, when it's tied to our religious beliefs, which pretty much go to the core, um, goodness grief, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. So that, you know, I'm, I'm always telling people, you know, is, is your faith, is your religion, is your relationship with God something that buoys you up, that gives you hope, that gives you faith, that gives you, you know, purpose and that helps you? Or is it something that really drags you down and is guilt-ridden and shameful? Because if it is, and you need to convert, you know, and I and I'm not saying necessarily convert away from the Mormon faith. But I'm saying you you need to convert your religion to something that is of use to your life, not a detriment and something so sad for you, and and then that you pass along to your children. Do we really want to be passing along shame to our children? And when it comes to the number one parenting plan, uh, you know, if we're talking about God, I mean, he's he's. He's letting us figure it out. He's not forcing us. He's not forcing us to go to church. He's not forcing us to not masturbate. He's not forcing us to to do anything. He kind of teaches the principles and and helps us, you know, I think you'll be happier if you go down this road, and then he lets us figure it out. We're not doing that as LDS parents. We're doing actually what the adversary wanted to do, which is to force everybody to the temple. Let's force everybody to the celestial kingdom. Uh, that's a problem, and that's why the kids rebel against it because it's not it's not a value to them if they don't figure it out for themselves. That means as parents, we need to increase our tolerance for their falling down, and scraping their knees, and getting dirty and bloody. Let's get our band aids yeah. out. Yeah, and you know, just I would also add to this this whole topic of addiction and pornography is that I think it's usually um, kind of um, associated with this idea of secrecy you know it's a secret i kind of secretly do this i have this addiction and um within mormonism at least there there is a lot of secrecy uh as part of the religion and i think that can kind of spill over into this issue you know i i can't talk about these things because if i do i'm going to be looked down on or whatever you know there's not there's not an it's not a culture of openness to where we can just talk about whatever doubts, um, you know, anything like that. And I think that tef- definitely spills over. At least that's been my experience and uh, conversations that I've had with others as well. I, I completely agree with that. I think that um, secrecy is lethal to anything, to a relationship with another person or with yourself. And, um, you know, you go to to anybody in a leadership position or even as a friend in, in the church and, and share anything of the sexual nature. And usually more than not, the anxiety is up and then for that shuts people down. You know, okay, this is not safe to talk about. This is not something, if I tell somebody there's going to be a dire consequence to it, you know, I'm going to be uh, shamed in some way. And then, and unfortunately also in our church, <laughs> that process is somewhat public. You now no longer can take the, the sacrament or you can't go to the temple or you can't, you know, so if you're living in a community where, um, you know, people can see that now all of a sudden your personal problem that you're trying to work through and a valid repentance process is now a public concern. And yeah. who who wants their, their parents to know that, you know, you've got 
you can't go to the temple because you've been masturbating or watching pornography. Um, and, and by the way, going back to that, I, I completely agree that those two things should not be uh, put together as far as um, equality and issues or anything. Masturbation can become addictive, and some people are legitimately addicted to, to masturbation. And, and many times that, that runs in conjunction with pornography. But there are plenty of people, many people who masturbate who have no issues with pornography. So those two are completely different subjects and should not be put together in one. Yeah, I agree. And and the level of shame that is put around just masturbation within the church is huge. The other interesting aspect of sexuality, you know, when I started my blog, um, my goal was just to throw out an anonymous venue where this idea of secrecy could be put to rest, you know, where people can come and, and just share and and find help. I did not mean it to be a sexual, you know, blog. I was 85% of my blogs are sexually related. I mean, that speaks a lot to me as far as, you know, if, if you're having just a basic issue, it's easier to go talk to somebody in the church about it. But if you want to go talk to somebody in the church about sex, that's just, it's harder, you know, it, and, and it's not just the church's fault. I mean, sexuality is a very sacred, intrinsically private thing. So it's difficult. It, it's going to be difficult to talk about it anyway. Even people who have very open parents and people who have uh, been, I think, you know, in my eyes, educated correctly about sexuality, they're still a very, it's, it's still a very private issue. So it's going to be somewhat intrinsically maybe embarrassing or, or shy to, to talk about things that are of such a private nature. So it's, yeah, it's not talk- just, it's not just the church's fault. This is what I want to say. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say, Natasha, your blog, uh, does get uh, fairly sexual, and you even have a disclaimer, right? <laughs> About <laughs> I have many disclaimers, when, so yeah. <laughs> when for, when I tried to get to your blog, it says you have to be seventeen. There may be some appro- there may be some content that may be inappropriate under seventeen or something like that. Yes, absolutely. It's an adult. It's an adult blog. Yeah. So in our in our last couple minutes here, um, and I know this is very difficult, but. I'm sure we have people who are listening who might be struggling in their own marriages or, um, you know, might have concerns. Um, you know, what, what sort of advice do we want to give them? And I'm, I'm going to start by saying, uh, uh, reflecting something Bob McHugh said on the podcast a few weeks ago, which is talk to a counselor, you know, get somebody you can talk to. But, you know, uh, from there, you guys, uh, what, what sort of uh, short advice would you give? Well, I mean, I would definitely agree that um, seeing a counselor can be helpful. Um, ultimately, I think people need a safe place um, to talk about whatever it is that they're going through, and therapy definitely can be that place. Um, hopefully, you would have people in your life that you would feel comfortable talking to, but not everybody does. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, that's I think that's what therapy is about, is about creating that space for people. Um, where they're not going to be judged, they're not going to be shamed, um, where they're going to be um, accepted in the midst of whatever they're going through. Uh, so I think that's very healing, and uh, that's that's going to contribute largely to uh, moving moving through things. Yeah, Wes, I, I completely agree. I think um, in addition to being a safe place, it's also an objective place. Uh, you can go to a family member or 
a friend um, who many times um, usually have nothing but the best of intentions. And yet because of their own experiences or maybe they like or don't like your spouse or, you know, whatever, um, will give sometimes incorrect or not helpful information. And um, so I think that the part of therapy that's so powerful for most people is that it's really an objective place where that person is not intimately connected to your life. And, and you can get really kind of a more professional opinion about what, what happens. I, you know, I think what's sad for me is many times the couples that come to see me have waited so long to take that step to come to see me. It's very difficult uh, to make reparations at that point. Um, and, and, quite fr- and that's not just in the Mormon faith. That's quite frankly something that marriage and family therapists in general deal with. So they're either coming for a last straw. Well, we can't get a divorce until we at least try marriage and family therapy. So, you know, we'll just kind of check that box. Or, um, you know, we're so angry and embittered towards each other at this point that it's very difficult to make progress in and uh, unless you're really in it for the long haul, which a lot of people don't want to spend that much time and energy when they're that angry and embittered. So, you know, I would really recommend that if you're having relational issues or even individual issues that you not wait until things get so bad. I wish we would do more preventative work in, in the mental health field. And the other thing I will say that that does relate to the LDS faith and and probably other faiths is this idea, well, you know, if you're having problems, really, we need to pray more, we need to fast more, we need to, you know, read more scriptures, we need to, and and I don't mean to minimize any of those things, because all of those spiritual tools can be very powerful and healing for people, but very often, if not almost, you know, in, in all cases, they're not the entire equation. They're not the all you know, and then and then that adds to the guilt because, well, if if I was praying more, if I had if I was a more faithful member, then I wouldn't be having these problems. And that's just that's just, you know, that's just not true at all. Um, you know, some of the most righteous people um, and prophets and scriptural accounts that we read of have had very severe and serious issues because that's what life is about. We have issues. We have problems. We have, you know, we were, we learn through them, we work through them, we, some of them are problems that we bring on ourselves, and some of them, many of them are not problems that we have any control over, they just happen. So uh, getting help should not be something that makes people feel like a, a spiritual failure. I agree, fully. All right, the, uh, the hour has gone by quick, as, as it usually does. Very uh, quick. Um. If uh, I know, I know you, you have a presence out there. Um, if people would like to contact uh, either one of you, uh, uh, maybe you can give your blog address also. How, how would they do so? Well, my blog is uh, mormontherapist.blogspot.com. You can Google Mormon Therapist, and I think I'm the first thing that pops up. Um, I'd also, you know, be more than happy to have people email me, which you can do that at natasha.parker@sbcglobal.net. And on my blog, if you want to, you know, throw me an email or even call my work number, I'd be more than happy to speak with people. I am I am available um, to see clients both through Skype sessions and telephone consults. So if people don't have somebody that they're comfortable with in their area or looking specifically for an LDS therapist, many people don't have that, you know, around geographically. So 
that's an option. Yeah. We'll, we'll, and, def- yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put those links up on our website too. Go ahead, Wes. Sure. Yeah, mine's CothersCounseling.com, and uh, I am linked there on the Mormon Expression page, Friends of Mormon's Expression, and uh, that's C-A-U-T-H-E-R-S, Counseling.com. You can also email me at Wes at Cothers.com. Um, you can also phone me. My number is on my website, and I do offer phone and Skype uh, counseling as well. Excellent. It's been a really great uh, session. Um, I feel like I've been at therapy. Um, <laughs> we could keep going on, but you're starting to cut into my porn surfing time, so we have to cut it short. Oh, jeez. <laughs> All right. Uh, oh, you tell me. As always, the uh, discussion continues on the website at uh, mormonexpression.com. You can send us an email at mail at mormonexpression.com. Or you can call and leave a message. The number is 801-906-6722. And be sure to go over to our Facebook uh, fan page where you can connect with other listeners. <laughs>